Today's scripture reading is taken from the book of Acts, chapter 4, verses 32 to 37. This is the word of God. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and they were distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means sons of encouragement, Levite, the natives of Cyprus, sold a field that belongs to him, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Thus says the Lord. Good morning again, friends. Today we are continuing in our sermon series through the book of Acts. And what we've seen so far is that the disciples were sent out by Jesus to preach the good news of the gospel to everyone around them. And now we're in the part of the story where a lot of people already heard the gospel preached in that region and they're starting to come to Christ. They're starting to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And a new young community, often called the early church, is starting to take Form, take shape. Okay, and in the past few chapters, we've seen uh, this early church do certain things together. In chapter two, we saw them preach the gospel together. In chapter three, we saw we see them worshiping and praying to God together. And now that we're in chapter four, what we see them doing is that they're sharing their possessions with one another. So one of the marks of the early church is that they had a robust giving culture. There's actually a letter that we have today written by an old Roman emperor uh, named Emperor Julius, and he ruled at that time. And one of his biggest agendas was to kill the Christian movement in the Roman Empire and to kind of, you know, relive the pagan religion. And he tried really, really hard to do that. He wouldn't let Christians hold public office, for example. He would uh, kill Christian education. He would beat and stone Christians to death. It, It was horrible. But no matter how hard he tried, He couldn't kill it. The early church just kept growing. And in his frustration, he wrote a letter, okay? A letter we have today uh, of him explaining his reasoning for the early church's growth. And this is what he said. Their success, he says, lies in their charity to all. They took care not only of their own poor, but ours as well. The early church viewed money differently than the world around them did and that advanced the message of the cross. Okay, in our passage today, we at least see five reasons of why the early church had such a robust giving culture, which will be our five points for today. First, because it was based on love, not guilt. Second, because it was done to vivify the gospel, not manipulate God. Third, because it was done actively, not passively. Fourth, because it was organized and not sporadic. And fifth, because they had someone leading the way. Okay, five short points. I'll still keep it under 30 minutes. First one, the early church had such a robust giving culture because it was based on love, not guilt. And we see this immediately in verse 32. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. So no one counted their possession as their own. Why? Why? because they were of one heart and soul, 
the passage says. That's the reason. Now, what does it mean to be of one heart? And this is different than just being of one feeling, okay? You've probably heard us say this a lot, but in the Bible, when it talks about the heart, it's not actually talking about the feeling. It's talking about something deeper. It's talking about the inner compass, the inner allegiance that you have with something. For example, if my heart's allegiance, okay, my, my allegiance with Manchester United, the football club, okay, my feelings, therefore, will be moved accordingly to what happens to Manchester United. If they win, I'll feel happy. If they lose, I'll feel sad. If they get a good new player, I'll feel excited. If they uh, got a bad player because of a bad trade, I'll feel anxious. You see, my feelings is different than my heart. My feeling reveals where my, where my heart lies, okay? And my heart in turn dictates what I feel. So, so here, when it says that the early church was of one heart, it doesn't mean it's of one feeling. It means they are so identified, allegiant with one another, that when something bad happens to the community, the others will feel sad. When something good happens to the community, the others will feel happy. When someone was persecuted and lost their job in the community, everyone would feel nervous, so to speak. That's what it means to be of one heart. They identified with one another. It's like if you've ever loved someone so much to where if something bad happened to them, your stomach would also get nauseous. You ever been in a relationship like that? That if something sad happened to them, your eyes would tear up. That if an injustice was committed toward them, your chest would boil up in rage. That's what it means to be of one heart. That's what it feels like. Now, it's common to feel that way toward our children, of course. It's you know, common to feel that way toward our family members or close friends that we grew up with. But do we feel that towards the other people in our local church? The early church did. They're of one heart. And now I want to point out, do you see how this is totally different than guilt-driven giving? You know, when a pastor shares an urgent need at the church, and everyone feels guilty and, and, and they give. And look, it's not always bad to share urgent needs. Sometimes it's legit. Sometimes there are urgent needs. But it is unfortunate that this often becomes the main reason of why a lot of people give today, especially in, in church settings. And, and unfortunately, a lot of pastors are aware of this, so they do capitalize on people's guilt sometimes. And, and look, uh, guilt-driven giving may produce quick and big results but it'll never produce this robust culture of giving that we see here in Acts chapter four. Why? Because guilt-driven givers, at the core of their giving, they give so that they can feel relief from guilt. They give so that they would no longer feel guilty. You see, at the end of the, end of the day, it's not driven by a love of others, it's driven by a love of self. And a love of self will never produce a culture of selflessness. And that's what I think verse 32 is asking us to do here. It's more than just to give. It's asking us to grow in such love, in one heart, in identification with other members of our church so that when they hurt, we hurt to where we would then be driven to give out of love, not guilt. Okay? That's, that's the first reason we see here of why the early church had such a robust culture of giving because they give out of love. Second reason is because they did it to vivify the gospel 
and not to manipulate God. Let's move on to verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Okay, let, let me explain this verse. Great grace here means that the community grew both in quantity and quality. Okay, so, so the apostles' preaching was so powerful that non-Christians were coming to Christ, quantity, and Christians were growing in their relationship, maturity in Christ, quality. Okay, but the question is, why was the apostles preaching so powerful? Well, because it was coupled with the sharing of possessions in verse 32. The people in the community were helping each other's holistic well-being. Spiritually, yes, they preached, but also each other's physical, financial, material well-being too. And that's what made the apostles specifically note testimony to the resurrection powerful. Now, hold on. Some of you may be saying, are you saying that preaching the gospel isn't enough? You kind of have to give money as well to kind of earn this great grace from God? That, that's not what I'm saying. Grace, by definition, can't be earned. Okay, it's freely given. No matter how much we give money or how well we preach, it's grace. The sharing of possessions here in verse 32 made the apostles' testimony to the resurrection powerful not because it purchased God's blessings, but because it vivified the blessing that God had already given them. Okay, if that's confusing, let me, let me explain. Stick with me here on, on a, this bit of a side note. I think it'll clarify the point. And I found this interesting. Have you ever noticed that the type of miracles that happen in the New Testament is totally different than the type of miracles that happen in the Old Testament? Right? In the Old Testament, miracles were like these big natural event showcases, right? Seas were splitting, fire was falling down from the heavens, right? Quakes uh, shook mountains. It's like these huge natural phenomenons. But if you read the New Testament, all of a sudden, the miracles changed in nature. Like 99% of them has to do with relieving someone of their physical ailment. Have you ever noticed that? Just like we saw a few weeks ago in Acts chapter 3, when a lame man, a man who couldn't walk, all of a sudden got up and walked. He was healed from his physical ailment. Now, what do you think is God's point here? Why do you think miracles in the New Testament all of a sudden switched from being these huge natural events to the redeeming of physical ailments? A blind man sees, a paralytic moves, a bleeding woman stopped her bleeding. The point is to vivify the blessing that Jesus Christ has purchased for us on that cross. What blessing did Jesus purchase for us? Well, the redemption of our whole persons. Is it not? The redeeming of our whole bodies. That's what's promised. That when Jesus Christ comes again, we'll be redeemed. Spiritually, yes. Morally, yes. But also physically, mentally, emotionally, materially holistically. Now, okay, side note over, back to verse 33. Look at it again. When the early church helped each other holistically, what message specifically was the apostles preaching that became powerful? It was their testimony of the resurrection. Here's the point. 
when the church uses its resources to help its members holistically, spiritually, of course, but also physically and materially, what it does is it vivifies the future holistic resurrection that Christ has purchased for us on that cross. Now, let me be clear. Giving can never replace preaching, okay? The church isn't here to make people's momentary lives on earth more comfortable. That is not why we exist. We are here to remind you that this is not your home. So don't get too comfortable. We are here to bear witness to the one who gave up his life on the cross so that you can have a holistic future resurrection awaiting you. Preach that, but also vivify it, highlight it, put an exclamation mark on it by the way you give up your possessions to help your brothers and sisters in Christ holistically. And when the church does that, and if God so chooses to give her grace, the result is power. They gave out of love, they gave to vivify the gospel, not manipulate God or people. Third, they gave actively, not passively. Let's move on to verse 34. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. Now, who were these people that owned lands and houses in the church back then? Quick historical background. The social class breakdown back then, it actually was, is quite similar to the social class breakdown that we have here in Jakarta today. Okay, about 4% of the population back then were really rich, about 10% of the population were kind of middle class, and then about 86% of the population were, were really, really poor. So in verse 34 says, those who owned land or houses sold it. That's referring to the top 14% upper and middle class in the church. Those are the people that would have owned lands or houses back then. Now, here's what we need to clarify, because I think the image that comes to people's mind here is this, that the top 14% in the church kind of sold everything they had, all their houses, all their lands, and they kind of put it on one pile, and they divided it out equally amongst everyone in the community in like one go. But that, that's not the picture here. How do we know that? Well, one reason is because if you continue reading the book, you'll see that Mary, who is a part of this community in Acts chapter 4, still owned a house in Acts chapter 12. She didn't liquidate her house in chapter 4 and then divided the proceeds up to everyone equally in the community. She still owned it in Acts chapter 12. I mean, they used it for baptisms and worship services, sure, but it was still her house. So you can't go to this passage and say, see, the Bible is promoting communism, where everyone kind of has the exact same amount of money everywhere. It's not. The church didn't force everyone to give in one go, and then all of a sudden everyone had an equal amount of money. In verse 34, the words sold and brought there is actually written in the Greek in the imperfect tense. That means it's an ongoing action. So it's actually more like selling and bringing, not sold and brought, brought as if it was all done in one go. Same goes for the words laid and distributed in verse 35. It's actually more like laying and distributing. Here's the point. What this means is that when you become a Christian, the picture is not that you're called to give passively because a central governing power made you. You're called to give actively, continuously, 
because a new family has been written into your hearts. And you see this today sometimes, I think, this pattern of, of, of passive, one-time, big, guilt-driven giving. Um, today, when people ask the question, and I've asked this question too, Pastor, how much money can a Christian have in their bank account before it's considered sinful? I get that question a lot because people want a rule down to the penny, and there just isn't any. I don't know what that number is. And I wonder, actually, if sometimes deep inside, there may still be hints of guilt hidden behind that question. And I wonder if actually the real question people are, are asking is, Pastor, how much money can I have without feeling guilty about it? Now, I'm not trying to make you feel bad or shame you if you've ever asked this question. I've asked this question plenty of times. I have. I'm, I'm trying to free us up from, from guilt-driven giving. Because how do you know that your giving is guilt-driven? Well, it's when you do it passively. You ever notice that? You know, when you're giving out of guilt, it's usually a big one-time gift, but then you forget about the cause a month later. Altogether. Right? You felt guilty about it, you gave, and then you just kind of forgot about it. If you really did care for the cause, if it really has captured your heart, you know what you'll do? You'll give actively and consistently. Not this passive one-time big gift, but it'll be in your monthly rituals, weekly rituals. Your giving will be less like sold and brought. Here you go, you happy now? And it'll be more like selling and giving. Part of your day-to-day -day life. The early church, they were constantly selling and giving and laying down their possessions to holistically care for their brothers and sisters in Christ because they gave out of love and because they gave to vivify. So they gave actively. Fourth, they also gave in an organized way. Okay, this one will be quick. It was organized, not sporadic. Now, some of us, you know, we're, we're hearing this and, and we're, we're thinking to ourselves, okay, I really do want to give more to other people in the church, but how am I supposed to know the needs of the whole church? I barely make it to community group, you know? And plus, how am I supposed to know that this person actually really needs something and they're not just kind of abusing the system and taking me, taking advantage of me? Those are great questions. And, and what I think we see here is that the early church had an SOP for all that, okay? Look at verse 35. For as many were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it, at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had needed. So who were the ones doing the distributing here? The apostles were. Now, how does this help that problem? Because if anyone is going to have a macro view of the needs in the community as a whole, it'd be the apostles. And, and look, just to assure you, this isn't some kind of scheme that the apostles came up with to kind of get control over the money. Just keep reading the book again. Two chapters later, you'll see in chapter six that when the community got bigger and, and, and this uh, process of giving became more complicated, the apostles, without skipping a beat, immediately gave this task over to the deacons, okay? So that they, the apostles, can focus on preaching and teaching the gospel. They didn't have this need to kind of control or, or grip over the money. But for now, in Acts chapter four, 
it was still a, a somewhat small community to where it was still manageable that the apostles were the ones distributing it without it really taking time from their preaching and teaching of, of the Bible, of the gospel. The, the point here is that there's a system in place that freed the congregation up from feeling like they got on all the details about how much to give to who, when, how, and where. They gave to the church, to the apostles, and when they, or today, the deacons, collected the money, they distributed it to whomever needs it. And you see this, there are two different offices in the church. You read the New Testament. Offices just means uh, groups that lead the church. And there's the elders or the pastors and the deacons. And there are qualifications for each uh, office uh, in the New Testament as well, in uh, Titus and First Timothy. Check them out. Okay, so th it's set up uh, in that way. And actually, just to share, in, in Covenant City Church, we actually hired a full-time Mercy Ministry staff person. Uh, whose sole job is to work closely with the deacons to make sure uh, to have necessary SOPs to execute this process of distributing um, in a way that's well done. Okay, so, so there's a system to it, and, and that system helped build a culture. All right, so let's move on to our last point. The early church had a robust culture of giving. Why? Because it was done out of love. It was done to vivify the gospel it was done actively, it was done in an organized way, and lastly, in verse 36, we see because they had somebody in that community who led the way. Last point, look at verse 36. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a nation of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So this guy Joseph, or also known as Barnabas, he's a person we see a lot throughout the New Testament. He's actually mentioned 23 times in the New Testament and is generally put in a, in a very positive light. If we dash chapter nine, he helped Paul in his conversion process to Christianity. And if you remember, Paul or Saul back then would murder Christians. So the fact that Barnabas did this actually says a lot about how brave of a person he was. In Acts chapter 11, he protected the church against heresy. In Acts chapter 13 to 14, we see him going on mission trips with Paul, sharing the gospel to everybody. In Acts chapter 15, he led a huge uh, capital C church meeting uh, to protect the church from legalism and, and protected the gospel. So this guy was a, was a great Christian. He was a great hero of the faith. He was described as brave, theologically robust, committed missionary, gospel-centered leader, all these great things. But before any of that, he was first here introduced in Acts chapter 4 as what? As a giver. The first time we see Barnabas, he was selling a field that belonged to him and he gave it away. What's the point here? Well, it's a simple one. But as Davin mentioned in his Ibadah sermon, I think it was two weeks ago, last week or two weeks ago, the simple ones are usually the hardest ones to obey. The point here, I think, we can derive from this is that as a Christian, the way you spend your money could be one of the most accurate tests to your Christian maturity. I'm not saying it's the only test. I'm just saying it's up there somewhere, okay? You know, board members and companies, they get to the end of the fiscal year and they say, look, look, what's the bottom line? 
Okay, what does the account say? What, what does the numbers say about how our company's doing? We can have all the bells and whistles, right? We can have global quality marketing team. We can have the state-of-the-art equipment. We can have a robust staff development program, everything. But at the end of the day, what's the bottom line say? What does the financial pattern say about the company? That's the real test. Well, what is your financial pattern? What does our financial pattern say about us? Look, we can have all the bells and whistles of Christianity, but there's something about the way you spend your money to where even Jesus says where your treasure is, your heart, you see, will be also. And we see here where Barnabas' heart lies, and it lies for the church. It's for the people of Jesus. But why? Why did he love Jesus' people so much? Because he loved Jesus. These past few months, my wife's family had to handle a few things in, in the U.S. And throughout the process, there was this really kind, older gentleman who really helped us through it all. A lot of legal stuff, a lot of relational stuff he had to navigate through. And at one point, you know, we, we sat him down and, and asked him, look, you've done so much for us. How could we ever repay you? You know, you've been so helpful. And he said, you know what? There is actually something that you guys can do. Let me connect you to my children, he said. Just in case, you know, one of them ever go to Indonesia or to Nashville, which is where Tatiana's brother lives. And if they ever need help, they would know who to contact. And we said, yeah, of course, that's great. Connect us to them. And literally, he then called her daughter, okay, who was going to college near Nashville, uh, and gave the phone to Tati's brother, who was a police officer in Nashville, connected them with one another, and said, look, if you ever need help, call this guy. Here's what this gentleman is saying. He's saying that I love my daughter so much to where if you really care for me, if you really meant what you said, you would care for her as well. What did Jesus tell Peter? Peter, do you love me? Peter said, yes, of course I do. You know this. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Care for my people. Tend to them. Barnabas loved the messy, sinful, flawed, and often undeserving people of Jesus Christ in the church. Not because they deserve it, but because he loved Jesus. And why did he love Jesus so much? Because he too realizes that he's a messy, sinful, flawed person in whom Jesus died for as well. Barnabas was an example of giving in the early church, but only because he had an example too. He saw Jesus, who though was rich, who though was equal to God, did not count his equality with God as something to be grasped. But he came down and became poor and sought him out so that Barnabas may be spiritually rich. He understood that. He got it. And look, until you really get that, until you really understand the gap between how spiritually impoverished you were without Christ and how extravagantly rich you are in righteousness now because of what Christ 
has done for you when he died on that cross. Until that sinks in, your bank account will never be cross-shaped. It won't. The early church viewed their money differently from the rest of the world around them because they had a heavenly love in their hearts that the rest of the world knew nothing of. And Barnabas knew this well, and he led the way. Look, these are the kind of sermons that make me at least feel guilty. I don't know about you. And you may be listening to the sermon, and you've been a Christian for a while, and you feel a little bit guilty about the way you've managed your money thus far as a Christian. Just remember, guilt-driven giving won't work. It won't help you shape cultures. Instead, take this to the cross. Remember, because of what Christ has done for you, you have a resurrection hope awaiting you, no matter your mistakes. And now, because of him, you have a life full of second chances, even with the way you manage your money. Tati and I try to do monthly financial meetings where we take a look at our finances and we ask ourselves whether or not our spending this month has been consistent with the worldview that we claim to believe in. And let me tell you, oftentimes it does not. So I wanna invite you to join us in remembering forgiveness daily, in falling in deeper love with Jesus daily, and therefore in growing in our love for his people daily. And then hopefully, he who owes no one anything would be so kind to give us great grace and make our presence here in this city powerful. Because not only do we preach the gospel, but we also vivify the resurrection hope that Christ has given us on that cross. By the way, we holistically love one another. I hope we'll become such a community Pray with me that God would have such grace and decide to choose to use us in such a way. Let's pray. Father, we come to you realizing that our lives are full of inconsistencies. We say one thing, but do another. We claim to feel one way, but then act differently. We claim to believe in certain things, but yet use our money in a way that is completely opposite to it. We are messy, inconsistent people, and sin causes us to do that. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for living your life here on earth, Jesus, consistently with the worldview of the Bible, the Christian worldview, the only truth, the only narrative of life. And by doing so, you've done all things perfectly, including the way you handled your possessions. And you died on the cross with your possessions being toyed around with and played around with by sinful people below you. But yet, you willingly stayed there for the sake of your people, for my sake, for our sake. Help us, Father, be transformed by this redemption, by the reality of this love that God has for people like us. And help us, Father, display that same love 
to those in our community who may need it. Help us love one another, not because the other person deserves it, but because Christ has showed us what love is. Do so. Help us powerfully work in the city by the way we holistically care and serve and love those around us and vivify the gospel message of redemption hope. In Jesus Christ, in his name alone we pray. Amen.